Well, good morning, church. If you're new with us here today, my name is Pete, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor alongside my wife, Kelly, and on behalf of our staff and all of the Dream Team members that you see wearing blue t-shirts, we just want to say welcome. So good to have you with us, whether you're in the room or you're joining us on the other side of a screen right now, streaming this live or watching this at a later date. Uh, It's always good to be with you guys. It's a privilege to share God's word with you. I'm going to be continuing a series that Pastor Beth kicked off last week called A Meal with Jesus. And by the way, how many of you enjoyed Pastor Beth's message last week? Wow. Powerful, powerful word. Grace and gratitude. And I pray that this week, especially as we celebrate Thanksgiving, that your heart would be overflowing with gratitude in response to the grace that he has lavished on each and every one of you. But the series, you know, A Meal with Jesus, what is it all about? You know, we wanted to kind of leverage the cultural moment that we are in where so many people will be sitting around a table sharing a meal with friends and family to kind of look into the scriptures to see what are some of the things that Jesus has had to say while in similar settings. You know, a lot of the things that Jesus said, some of his most famous teachings happened while seated at a table sharing a meal with friends. And so that's what the kind of the creative idea or inspiration behind this series is all about. And today I want to begin my message with a question. How many of you have ever experienced a time in your life when someone saw the good in you, whether it was a gift that you had or a talent or even just your heart or your character, and called it out and it changed your perspective of yourself? Has anybody ever experienced that before? Where someone believed in and called out your potential and it changed your own perspective of yourself? It's powerful when that happens. The first time I remember that happening in my life, I was about 15 or 16 years old, and I've shared with you guys many times about how when I was 13 is when I first believed that God had called me into vocational ministry, that I would one day be a minister and a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was both exciting and terrifying at the same time. Because I was a shy, timid, introverted kid, and the thought of talking to anybody, much let alone publicly, was absolutely terrifying. And so while I believed I had this calling, I doubted whether or not I would ever be able to step into it, because all I could see were my own limitations and shortcomings. But a couple years after that experience of feeling like God had called me, we'd moved back to Buffalo, New York, from Sacramento, California, When I was about 15 or 16 years old, we wound up at a very small church in Hamburg, Hamburg Assembly of God, which was the church that my dad would eventually become the senior pastor at before he passed away. And uh, I got involved because that's what we always did. We grew up in church, and so if you go to church, you're going to get involved. I got involved in the youth group, even though there was only like five kids uh, in the youth group at the time because the church was really small. And uh, we formed a youth worship team with a couple of people that we had. In fact, Joe Miller, who leads us in worship from time to time, uh, that was one of his first experiences kind of putting together and leading a youth worship band. And uh, we started partnering up with other area churches and doing some joint combined functions with their youth groups. And lo and behold, our youth group, our little youth group began to grow. We went from being like, you know, six or 10 kids on a Friday night to eventually seeing 30, 40, even 50 kids show up on a Friday night. And I'll never forget my youth pastor, Randy Johnson, coming to me and asking me if I would be willing to preach on a Friday night to my youth group. And I was, again, excited and terrified at the same time. I'm like, you would trust me to do that? Like, I was excited because like, yes, this is what I believe I'm called to, but the thought of talking to people in public is petrifying. And so I agreed to do it. 
I, I, I prepared, I prayed, I really believed that God had given me a word, and I'll never forget, even the night that I was going to preach, Pastor Randy, the way he introduced me even to my youth group was something that began to shift and change my perspective of myself because he introduced me in a way, even though everybody knew me, like he introduced me in a way that made me believe he was genuinely excited to hear what I was about to say and that everyone who was there should be equally excited to hear from this teenage kid who was about to preach his first message ever. And I remember, I'll never forget the uh, preaching the message, giving an altar call at the end of the service, and half the youth group came forward, and all the leaders got to pray for all of the students, and it was a powerful time of ministry, and I walked away from it truly believing that maybe one day I will be able to have the courage to preach the gospel, and it was all because Pastor Randy saw something in me and called out my potential, and it changed my perspective. There is something really powerful when we can do that for other people, isn't there? What would happen if you and I began to uh, engage with our community that way? With West Seneca, Buffalo, Western New York, what if we started calling out the good in all of our neighbors rather than seeing all of the problems with our society and just seeing everybody's needs? Because I really think that's what God has called us to do as his people. The problem is, I don't think the church has done a very good job of this historically because human nature makes it difficult for us to engage with people who are different than us. Even if it's not overt and we're not trying to be judgmental or anything like that, we gravitate towards people who look like us, act like us, talk like us, believe like us, vote like us. And so we stick in our little bubbles, never really venturing out to reach people that might be in a different socioeconomic status, a different race, a different part of town. But I want to look at how Jesus engaged with a community that was very different from his own and see what we can learn about that for ourselves. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open it up and follow along. Or if you have a Bible app on your phone, uh, you can turn there as well, John chapter 4. We're going to read quite a bit of this chapter. And so I want to dive right in, beginning in verse 3. It says that Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. I want to pause right there. If you know anything about the culture at this time, then, then that might seem like a very trivial, insignificant detail. But if you know anything about the relationship between Jews and Samaritans at this time, then those six words, he had to go through Samaria, carry massive weight. See, if we're just talking about the shortest, quickest route between Judea and Samaria, then it would make sense that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because I got a map I want to show you of how Judea was a region in the southern part of Israel. Galilee was a region in the northern part of Israel. And smack dab in the middle was Samaria. And so the shortest, quickest route if somebody was traveling from Judea to Galilee was to go through Samaria. However, devout Jews in Jesus' time would never go through Samaria. They would go out of their way to travel around Samaria. Why? It was actually culturally inappropriate for a Jew to enter the town of a Samaritan. Because Jews hated Samaritans. You've got to understand the 700-year history leading up to this moment where Jesus walks through Samaria is full of racism, bigotry, and hatred. 
When the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 BC, the Jews that were in that region began to intermarry with the Assyrians. And so Jews from that point forward called people in that region dogs and half-breeds because they were half-Jew and half-Gentile. And they began to form their own form of religion here. And so they were outsiders, outcasts, looked down upon by Jews, dogs and half-breeds. 700 years of racism and hatred. And they would go out of their way to travel east of the Jordan, up and around Samaria, which is a distance of about a marathon, give or take, just to avoid it. But here it tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria. He didn't have to because most people went around. So why did Jesus have to go through? Let's find out. Continue with verse 5. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. That's an important detail. Key to the day. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And John puts in parentheses here that his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is sitting there by himself at noon at the heat of the day when a woman comes out to draw water, and he asks her for a drink. Now, we have to understand also at this time that not only did Jews not really associate with Samaritans, men didn't really talk to women, at least not publicly and not with strangers. You might address your spouse if you were in public, but men considered themselves as superior to women, which shows me that Jesus came to kind of tear down the gender barrier that we have in so many cultures today. But just by asking her for a drink, he was breaking cultural norms and extending love while also displaying her ability. He, he displayed value for her ability to get that drink of water for him. I want you to hear me for, on this. He asked her for help before he asked to help, which we can learn something about as Christians today. He asked her for help before he asked to help. Surprised that he was even speaking to her, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John tells us that Jews do not associate with Samaritans, which I've already shared with you. So Jesus not only smashes through the gender barrier, now he's smashing through a race barrier to strike up this conversation. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13, everyone who drinks this water, this well water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will be in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says, well, I want some of that. Sir, give me this water so that I, don't want, I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw water. And so Jesus tells her, go, call your husband and come back. And she replies in verse 17, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. It's like, oh, snap. How did he know that? He just read her mail. And now here is where we find out why she was at the well at noon. See, because most women in this culture would go to the well to get their water for the day at daybreak, when it was still cool, before the heat of the day sets in. But this woman, because of her reputation for being somebody who kind of 
slept around a notorious adulterer, probably grew tired of having to endure the, the dirty looks, the hushed whispers when she would approach just to get her water for the day. And so she would come at noon when she could be by herself, even though it was hot, even though it was tiring work to carry these heavy jugs of water back into town, at least she wouldn't have to deal with the awkward exchanges of people that just made her feel dirty and ashamed. And see, we have to understand too that Jesus calling out her sin here in this moment was not to judge her or belittle her. It was to display that he chose to love and honor her despite her sins, the same way he chooses to love all of us. Now realizing that she was not talking to your average Joe, she looks at him and says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. There's no way you could have known any of that unless you were a prophet. And so recognizing him as a prophet, the first thing she does is begin to talk to him about the proper place to worship and why, can't, why she can't just worship God where she's at. Like so many of us do, when our sin is pointed out, she tried to kind of divert the conversation to a different topic. But Jesus could see in her response that she genuinely wanted to know God and wanted to worship God. And so after some back and forth, you know, conversation about that topic, she says in verse 25, I know that there is a Messiah called Christ who's coming, and when he comes, he'll explain all of this to us. Verse 26, then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. She's like, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. This is the ultimate mic drop moment in all of human history. By the way, this is the first time in all of the Gospels where Jesus publicly and verbally confesses and acknowledges to someone who he is. And he does so to an adulterous outsider, a Samaritan. Just then, as he tells her who she is, says the disciples returned because they were out getting food, right? And they were surprised to find him talking with a woman for the reasons I already told you. And then John does something that you don't typically do when you're telling a story. Like when you went to grade school or whatever and you had to write a short story, your teacher probably told you to include all the details of what happened and tell how it smelled and what were the colors and all of this stuff, include details. But John includes some things in his account after the fact that didn't happen. John says, but no one asked what do you want, Jesus? Which is just common hospitality. See, John wants his readers to know that neither he nor any of his other disciple friends asked Jesus if he needed anything. Why did he do that? Why did he write down what didn't happen unless he wished it had happened? And then he writes, not only did we not ask him if he wanted anything, but we also didn't ask him, hey, why are you talking with her? If you're a disciple back in Jesus' day, and you see your teacher, your rabbi, doing something that's out of the ordinary, that's unexpected, don't you think you would kind of say, hey, teacher, can you please explain this to me? I've never seen you do this before. Why are you talking with that woman? But they didn't ask him that. I think what John was pointing out here in this moment was how selfish that he and the other disciples were in that moment. They weren't really concerned with what Jesus wanted or what Jesus was doing. They were only concerned with themselves, which we will see here in just a moment. But I wonder how often the same could be said of us. 
where we're not really concerned with what Jesus wants or what Jesus is doing. Instead, we're only focused on what we want. Verse 28, the woman leaving her jar went back to the town and said to the people, like, I think I found God. Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And listen, the whole town knew everything that she ever did. She said to them, could this be the Messiah? Come meet him with me. And because of her reputation and how convincing she was, check this out, verse 30, the town came out and made their way toward him. So imagine with me, if you will, this woman leading a bunch of people. It doesn't tell us how many. My mind pictures maybe a couple dozen up to maybe as many as 100. She's leading them out to Jesus because of what she just told them he knew about her without prior knowledge. And this next part I find funny. I don't know if you will, but just bear with me. So picture a bunch of townspeople walking towards Jesus and the disciples around a well. And what do his disciples have to say in the moment? You got 50 to 100 people coming at you. They're like, Rabbi, eat something. Like, really? That's what's on their mind? And if I could be honest, that would, that would probably be me if I was a disciple back then. I'd be like, Jesus, yo, we've been walking since early this morning. It's noon. It's hot. I'm hungry. Can we go get some Chick-fil-A or something? Like, let's eat. They wanted to have a meal with Jesus in this moment, despite the fact that there's a whole bunch of people coming towards them. And then Jesus did something that he often did. When you read the Gospels, people will bring up a question or a subject, and he will use that subject to teach a spiritual truth. And so they bring up food, and look at what Jesus says to them in response. He says, I have food to eat that y'all don't know anything about. That's what I want to talk about today. I know the series is a meal with Jesus, and this isn't a literal meal with Jesus, but I want to talk about the spiritual meal that he fed them in this moment. And we're going to have a meal with Jesus this morning. And the disciples are like, is he hot? has he got a stash of secret food that we don't know about? Did he eat before we came back? Like, did somebody bring him something? That's what they said. Like, his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him some food? Like, what do you mean you have food we don't know anything about? I don't know why. That's just kind of funny to me. Probably funny because it has to do with food. And like my sister, I love food. I love to cook it. I love to eat it. I love to dine out. I love to dine in. Like anything related to food, I'm all about, which is why Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday of the year. We're making two turkeys this year. My wife's amazing sweet potato casserole. Stuffing, mashed potatoes. I do Reed Drummond's mashed potato recipe, y'all. There's so much butter and cream cheese and cream in that. Like salt, pepper. Oh, my gosh. I'm drooling right now. I cannot wait for Thursday. One other person's happy about Thursday, too. <laughs> so it's kind of funny, but it's also a little sad. And it's sad because they were with Jesus, and they were missing the moment. They didn't ask what Jesus wanted. They didn't care why he was talking to a woman. They missed the whole pile of townspeople walking towards them. And even as Jesus is trying to tell them what he's doing, they still missed it. And I wonder if his disciples, who literally followed him around all day, every day, could miss it, if we can't also miss it sometimes too. So Jesus tries again, continuing in the same analogy. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his, everyone say this next word with me, work. To finish his work. Jesus basically was saying, 
hey, the reason I came is to bring hope and healing to a lost and broken people. That is what sustains me. I like food as much as anybody else, but he's saying we've got work to do. He's saying you're missing the moment because you're too focused on yourselves. Listen, I think the same can be true of us as well. That we miss the moment of people all around us who need the hope that we have, but we don't see it because we're too focused on ourselves. We all have this gravitational pull in us towards selfishness. And I'm including myself in that as well. Like left to my own devices, I'm all about me, myself, and I. Let me take care of mine. Let me figure out where my next meal's coming from, all of that. But I need to be reminded from time to time, and you need to be reminded from time to time, that while we're busy trying to figure out our agenda, our schedules, our needs, our wants, our next meal, there's a whole pile of people all around us that desperately need the hope that we have. But we're missing it. And then look at what he says to them next. Don't you guys have a saying, it's still four months and then the harvest? And so what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting a procrastination colloquialism, a saying that they used in their culture that basically meant, oh, we'll do it later. It's still four months and then, the har- and then we'll do it. Like, so he's basically saying, you guys keep saying you'll do it later, but I tell you, everyone say these next three words with me, open your Eyes. That was about five people that actually said that with me. You got to do better. Come on, work with me here, people. Are you awake? Are you alive this morning? Let's try that again. Everyone say, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. This whole group of people is coming towards them. And he's saying, look, don't you see? The fields are ripe for harvest, but you've got to see it. You've got to open your eyes. I truly believe, church, that if Jesus could physically appear before us right here, right now, at Life Church Buffalo in West Seneca, New York, on November 19th, 2023, I believe he would tell us the same thing he told his disciples next to that well in Sychar, Samaria, 2,000 years ago. Church, open your eyes. Look around you. If you could see Buffalo the way I could see it, Jesus would say, look at the fields all around you. They're ripe for harvest. There's so many people that need to hear the good news about me. That's what he would say. We've got to open our eyes because we can't reach what we can't see. We can't love and serve people that we can't see. The problem is many of us just don't see very well. Now, when it comes to natural vision, I have pretty close to perfect vision. I actually used to have 2015 Vision. I had LASIK eye surgery about five or six years ago and uh, gave me perfect vision. And then I hit 40 years old and all of a sudden something happened almost overnight where things in really small print, if it's really close, I have to like, I can't see it. I got to get myself some readers. But prior to LASIK a few years ago, I had horrible vision. Okay. And I remember the first time when I was a kid, I was probably 10 or 12 years old. I remember exactly how old I was, but uh, my, my mom saw me kind of squinting to see things that were far away. And so she took me to the eye doctor. Things up close, you know, I could see, but things far away were a little blurry. And so I go to the eye doctor, just like many of you have. And uh, I hate it when doctors start doing stuff without telling you what they're going to do. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Like the first thing they had me do was put my chin on this little bar and look up real close at this machine. And the next thing I know, it's like this huge blast of air hits my eyeballs. I'm like, dude, what the heck was that? They're like, 
That was a glaucoma check. I'm like, well, warn a brother first. Next thing I know, he's like this close to my face with a little flashlight looking at my eyeballs. I'm like, brother, you better back up or get yourself a Tic Tac. His breath stunk. And then this, this machine, like, with all these lenses on it come in front of my face, and, you know, they switch lenses out. Like, which looks better, A or B, B or A? Which looks better, A or B, B or A? I'm like, I don't know, there's so much pressure. They all look good compared to what I was seeing. What if I choose wrong? Finally, he goes out of the room for a few minutes, comes back in, says, we've got you figured out. I'm like, I hope so. That's why I'm here. You're the doc. You get paid to do this. He's like, you're nearsighted. I'm like, that can't be right. Everything near is fine. It's far I can't see. I thought he would do what most doctors do and name the problem. But I learned that day that optometry is the only medical profession that names you for what you're good at, which makes no sense to me. It's like going to the doctor with a broken arm and them telling you, well, your legs work. Thanks, doc. No, he explained that, you know, nearsighted people can see close but have a hard time seeing far. I'm like, why, why don't you name it distance-sighted that or something? Like, doesn't make any sense to me. And then a week later or so, I remember going back to get my glasses, my prescription, walking out of that office for the first time, able to see clearly for the first time in my life, and I was amazed at what the world looked like. Just the clarity and the definition that I had been missing out on, things in the distance that I wasn't able to see before. And I think nearsightedness isn't just a natural condition. I think we can experience spiritual nearsightedness as well. We're focused on that which is close to us, but things that are far away is kind of blurry, and what I can't see, I don't feel responsible for. You can tell you're spiritually nearsighted by what you pray for. Consider this, if God answered all of your prayers tomorrow, would it change the world or would it just change you? Something to think about as it relates to your own spiritual sight, if you will. See, when we're spiritually nearsighted, we're blinded by our own needs. And the church is full of spiritually nearsighted people who think the church exists primarily for them to meet their own needs. Listen, I want you to hear me on this. If this is your church, I as your pastor and the rest of the pastors and leaders at this church will do everything we can to serve you and help you know and follow Jesus step by step. But as your pastor, I want you to know and hear me that the church should never exist primarily to meet all of your needs. Yes, it provides you community. Yes, it's a place where you can experience healing and be equipped to live on mission. But if you're a Christ follower, listen, you don't go to church. You are the church, and you exist for the world. The church exists to bring hope and healing to lost and broken people. It doesn't exist to meet all of your needs. So my question to you today is if you could see your school, if you could see your workplace, if you could see Buffalo the way Jesus sees it, what would you see? I'm gonna give you a very simple but very, I believe, scriptural answer. When Jesus looks at the world, and granted, I know he sees everything, okay? Please hear me. He is omniscient, he knows everything. But when he looks at the world, I believe his primary focus is on those who are still lost. Scripture says it over and over again. In fact, Jesus says it three times in one chapter. 
Read Luke 15. He tells three parables in a row, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. Jesus said, I came to seek and save those who are lost. So when Jesus looks at the landscape of the world, I don't believe he's primarily focused on taking inventory of his found things, a.k.a. us. I believe he is focused on finding his lost sons and daughters. That's what I believe Jesus is focused on when he looks at the world. Now listen, I want to be careful with this because I'm not saying that as soon as you enter a relationship with Jesus that he doesn't care about you anymore. I'm not saying that. He is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his kids. Scripture tells us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. I just think that maybe too many of our prayers are focused on what we want rather than on what God wants. And God wants none to perish and all to come to repentance. Let me put it to you this way. Those of you who are parents, how many of you have ever experienced the uh, heartbreaking panic striking moment where you all of a sudden don't know where your child is ever experienced that before where you misplace or your child gets lost for a little bit worst experience ever is it not when kelly and i were younger our two boys um ike was he was an infant still he was in an infant carrier and sammy was probably three at the time two or three walking very precocious curious little toddler you know investigating things and there was this one time where we were doing something that people don't do anymore, we were actually shopping in the McKinley Mall. I know that place is like a ghost town now, but we were in JCPenney in the McKinley Mall back when that was the place to be and the thing to do. And so I thought that Kelly was keeping an eye on Sammy, and Kelly thought that I was keeping an eye on Sammy, but both of us were kind of preoccupied with perusing the clothing racks and not really keeping a close watch on Sammy, when almost at the same time, we both turned to each other with this panic-stricken look when we realized that neither of us had seen from or heard from Sammy in several minutes. And we both said, where's Sammy? And instantly, the panic, like your heart starts racing. It's like, we gotta find him because all of the things you've ever heard about the horror stories of what happens to kids who are abducted are racing through our mind. Now, Ike was an infant when that happened, so he would have never said this, but if he was older, like he would have never asked in that moment as we're panically looking for Sammy, he would have never said, hey, dad, hey, what's for dinner tonight? It's a fine question if Sammy isn't missing. It's a horrible question if he is missing. But I wonder if, if that's not how our prayers sometimes sound like to God. Like, really, that's what you want to talk to me about right now? I mean, I love you, but didn't I promise that if you seek me first, I'll take care of all of your needs? Now listen, again, please hear my heart on this. I am not suggesting that we not ask God for the things that we need. In fact, he taught us in the Lord's Prayer to ask for our daily bread. But he already knows the things we need before we even ask for them. But in order of priority, didn't he teach us to pray and ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth before we ask for our daily bread? There is no such thing as intimacy with God without starting to feel and hear his heartbeat for the lost. I truly believe that the closer you get to Jesus, the more burdened you will start to feel for the lost people in, the, in your life, and the less focused you'll be on asking him for the things that he has already promised he'll take care of. So as we're looking for Sammy, I run up to the first woman 
that I find. And I said, have you seen our son? He's about this big, like three years old, blonde hair. Like, and she just flippantly, no, and kept shopping. Bro, like I, I was instantly irritated at her inactivity because something of value to me was missing. And I wonder if God doesn't ever feel that way sometimes too. I wonder if he ever gets irritated at our inactivity. Yes, I know he loves us. I know he cares about our needs. I know he loves it when we gather and sing praises to him. But I wonder if he ever gets irritated in our inactivity when there are people in our lives that are valuable and precious to him that are made in his image who are lost and headed for a Christless eternity unless one of us introduces them to Jesus. Open your eyes. So what do we need to open our eyes to? Let me give you three things as we get ready to close. Open your eyes to who they are. You gotta see the people. Open your eyes to who they are. And listen, if you meet the same people that I meet, I get it. People can be really weird. They can be really annoying. Like, I get it. But I want to encourage you to, like, remember that hurting people hurt people. So when you encounter someone who's acting obnoxious or irritating or annoying or is being hurtful, before you just write them off, I want to encourage you to maybe take a moment to realize or think that there's probably something that has happened in their lives that is contributing to them acting that way. Because hurting people hurt people. We've got to open our eyes to who the people are in our lives that God has called us to reach with the good news about Jesus. Your neighbors, like who is your neighbor? In fact, there was a the story in the Gospels when somebody walks up to Jesus and says, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? And he tells them, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy trying to justify himself says to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? Thinking that he had been kind of walking this out and living this way. And so Jesus tells the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, which I'm sure many of us know, even if you didn't grow up in church. He tells a story of a guy who's beaten up by robbers and kind of left for dead and this Jewish priest, this religious leader, this upstanding moral citizen walks by, sees the man, walks on the other side of the road and ignores his need. Then a Levite walks by on the other side of the road, sees the man and does nothing to help him. But then a Samaritan, an outsider, somebody that the Jews hated, saw the man and had compassion on him, put him on his donkey, bandaged his wounds, took him to an inn, gave the innkeeper some money and says, hey, I have to go, but I want you to care for this man until he's well. And when I come back, if you've had to spend anything beyond what I have given you, I will give you even more. And Jesus tells the man who in this scenario was the neighbor. And the man replies, I suppose the one who had mercy. The point of the story is this. When you ask the question, who is my neighbor? Every human being who has flesh and blood that is in proximity to you is your neighbor even those who are different from you, even those who are of a different race or a different color, different creed, a different religion, is your neighbor, your family members, for better or worse, immediate and extended family, they're your neighbors, your classmates in school are your neighbors, even the ones that irritate the fire out of you, the people in your office or in the factory floor that you work with, they're your neighbors. You know who else is your neighbor? The homeless guy you drive by every other day on your way to work who's begging for money or food 
the thousands of immigrants and refugees living on the west side are your neighbor. The man or woman locked up behind bars, incarcerated, is also your neighbor. Are we willing to open our eyes to who they are? Number two, we've got to open our eyes to where they are. And what I mean by that is for those of you who have already surrendered your life to Jesus, confessed him as Lord, you've been adopted into God's family, guess what? You're now a part of the search committee. If when God looks at the world, he is primarily focused on those who are lost, then listen to me, found people find people. That's you and I. If we're followers of Jesus, we should be in the business of finding other lost people to introduce them to Jesus. Found people find people. And we have got to open our eyes to the opportunities that are available to you literally every single day that we miss, people that God brings to you. You might go out to lunch after church today, and if you don't open your eyes, you might miss the divine opportunity that God orchestrated for you to minister to your server in that moment. Now, I'm not suggesting that every encounter with a random stranger is a divine encounter, But I do think we miss a whole lot more than we realize because we're so spiritually nearsighted and all we're focused on is ourselves. We don't see who they are. We don't see where they are. They're literally right in front of us. They sit next to us in homeschool. They sit in the next cubicle at work. They're at the grocery store checkout line. They're at the gym that you work out at. They're living on the streets and in homeless shelters. They're locked up behind bars and in prisons. We've got to open our eyes to where they are. And number three, we've got to open our eyes to what they need. And I think the church has been confused about this point of what lost people actually need. See, there's a guy by the name of Daniel in the Old Testament who believed in God but lived in Babylon, a very wicked and pagan culture that's not too unlike the one we're living in today. See, Daniel stood for truth and had influence at the same time. And right now it seems to me that there are churches that are trying to do one or the other. There's a camp of Christians, there's a whole group of Christians that believe that the biggest thing the world needs right now is truth and it's our job to tell them. You're wrong, we're right, you're gonna go to hell, you better turn or you're gonna burn. Get right or you're going to get left. Like all of these corny, cliche Christian sayings that we use to try to help people see that they're wrong and we're right. Listen, that is not our message. It's not our message. Yes, we have to stand for truth, but we can't do it in a way that turns people off from the gospel, from the God who loves them so much that he sent his only son to die, that they would have opportunity to be reconciled to a relationship with him. On the other side of the pendulum, though, you've got a whole other group of Christians that say it's all about the love. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what they believe. It doesn't matter what they do. We just got to love them. Got to show them the love. Can you feel the mushy, gushy love? Can you feel the love tonight, baby? We just got to love everybody. Doesn't matter what they do. Yes, love is important but not by itself and not at the expense of truth. John wrote in his gospel that Jesus came full of grace and truth. He gave them both. And as one of my favorite preachers and communicators, Chris Hodges says, truth 
without grace is just mean. When we use the Bible to beat people up and try to condemn them to hell, that is mean. That is not God-breathed. But grace without truth is meaningless. What's the point if we don't speak it in love, the truth? But when you combine them both together, grace and truth is good medicine. It brings healing and sets people free. And we've got to open our eyes to this. Because if we're not careful, we can become the very reason that people turn away from God. The number one reason that non-Christians give when asked for why they don't become a Christian is because they've met other Christians. They see the hypocrisy of their lives and they say, well, if that's what Christianity is, then I want nothing to do with it. There's the famous quote many of you I'm sure have heard from Brennan Manning who says, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny him with their lives. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And recognize when I say that we've got to open our eyes to what they need, not only is there a need for grace and truth, we have to understand that people often have a felt need and what I call a deeper spiritual need. And as Christians, a lot of times, we are so focused on trying to meet the deeper spiritual need and introduce them to Jesus and have them confess their sins so they can receive forgiveness and have eternal life. But people, a lot of times, human nature, think about even in psychology, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. People can't even become aware of their deeper spiritual need until they have their base felt needs met first. And so sometimes that might be food insecurity. Sometimes that might be mental health or job training. Or sometimes it might be someone to just validate their grief and their hurt and their pain and sit with them in it and cry in it to validate what they're experiencing. We gotta be willing to meet their felt need first so that we might have an opportunity to speak to and address the deeper spiritual they have for a savior who can take away all their sins. The sins that are the thing that is contributing to the brokenness and the pain that they're experiencing. So listen, as a church, we wanna engage with our community around us the way Jesus engaged with Samaria, by entering it without judgment or conditions, by treating everyone as equals worthy of respect and love and honor, and by calling out the good in others so that we can build a city of good neighbors from the unlikeliest of places for the glory of God alone. So we're entering a new season as a church that I'm inviting you into with us. We're dedicating the next few months to discovering how God is asking each of us to embrace the kindness, love, care, and generosity of Jesus to our community. We're gonna do this by identifying and releasing the gifts and talents and abilities that are resident within each of you as we look at how we can use those things to love and serve our community. Because each of us, make no mistake about it, has a significant role to play. And so we have entered into an agreement. We have partnered with a company, a group called the Neighborliness Center, and they are working with us to create a strategic plan for community engagement. And over the next several weeks, we're asking everyone to participate in this process to identify your unique gifts and talents so that we can help make Buffalo and Western New York more like heaven. And the first step is for all of us to answer and partake of a questionnaire together. In fact, we believe in this so much, we're gonna do it right now at the close of the message. We're gonna take the next five minutes 
And uh, we're gonna have a QR code that pops up on the screen. I want you to take out your phones. Yes, I'm giving you permission. Even though you do it anyway, you think I can't see you, but open up the camera on your phone. Hover over that QR code. If you need to zoom in, zoom in on your camera. There should be a link that pops up. You don't have to take the picture. Just hover your camera over it. There should be a link that pops up. Click the link on the screen of your phone. That should take you to a survey. In Western New York, as it is in heaven, talent assessment. All right, so I want you to scan that. Once you get to the survey, we're going to do this right now. The first couple questions are demographic-related questions. Just give us an idea of who you are. So those should be a couple seconds each to answer, questions one through four. Question five is about your current vocation. God is not calling everyone to quit their jobs to be used for his purposes. In fact, there is a really great chance that you are exactly where you need to be in this season. We also recognize that there are others of you that might be working a job and you're grateful for the provision of that job, but it's not your dream job. Maybe some of you have thought about switching to a different career that is more in alignment with your gifts, talents, passions, and abilities. And and so if that's true, we would love to hear about that as well in question number six, if you're willing to share that with us. When you get to question seven, I want you to pause and look up here at me. That's the question that asks, what talent or skill do you have that could be used to serve others? Looks like most people are looking up here. What I want you to understand is that serving the church and serving the community doesn't necessarily look like wearing a blue dream team t-shirt and brewing coffee or, you know, standing at the door as a greeter or as an usher or serving on the worship team or, you know, manning a camera or serving in kids life or on the parking lot. Those are great. I'm not discounting that. And serving the community also doesn't necessarily only consist of doing community service type projects, like what we do on serve day. And again, I love those things. We're not gonna stop doing those things, but we wanna kinda take a broader perspective and look at the unique set of gifts, talents, and abilities that we have right here in each of our Life Church Buffalo family members to see how we might be more intentional about meeting the specific needs of the community that we are planted in. So think about the things that come naturally to you on this question. Think about the things that your friends and your family members consistently tell you you're good at. Even if you don't believe them, what are those things that they tell you you're good at? These skills can be relational, they can be technical, they can be managerial, they might even just be random hobbies that you enjoy. The more we know about your gifts and talents, the more we can creatively find ways to work together to benefit and serve our neighbors. So don't be shy on this. We wanna hear about all of the amazing ways that God has uniquely wired and created you so that we can creatively work together to find a way to serve our community for his purposes. So write those skills down. Maybe you're good at fixing lawnmowers. Maybe you're retired and there's a skill you haven't been able to use in a while. Even if you can't see how it could be used to serve the community, write it down. What are your gifts and talents? Write it down. The next couple of questions are about your time and your availability. Time is one of our most valuable resources and each of us have different levels of availability. So take a quick second to just consider how you might create more margin and more time in your schedule to love and serve our neighbors. 
And listen, this is not a binding agreement. So if you answer that you have five or 10 hours a week to give in service to your community, we're not gonna come to you six months from now after you've only served one hour a week and say, hey, back when we did that survey in November, you told us you would give 10 hours and you're only giving one. No, that's not what this is about. We're just trying to get a general feel for what your level of availability is and using your gifts and talents to serve people outside the church in our community. Question 10, as we work together to bring peace and healing into our community, we've created a list of areas that as a church, we wanna be more intentional about being more involved in those areas and serving our community. So select the areas in that list that you are either already serving in or that you would like to learn more about, whether it's food insecurity, whether it's incarceration, whether it's homelessness, whatever that, there's about a dozen options listed there. If you're already serving there, identify that. If you'd like to learn more about it, identify that. And then the last two questions is helping us to realize that God has been at work in our community long before Life Church Buffalo showed up. There's some great organizations out there that are and have been loving and serving our neighbors, and there's a good chance that many of you are already aware of them and involved in some capacity. And so we want you to let us know about what organizations you know of that you're involved with or that are contributing to the areas listed above in the previous question. So let us know about those organizations so that we can use that information to kind of come up with, we wanna be intentional and strategic about either pursuing relationship and partnership with these organizations or shoring up relationships with outreach partners that we already are in relationship with. So let us know about those in questions 11 and 12. Listen, Ephesians chapter four tells us that we become the mature body of Christ when everyone participates, when everyone uses the gifts that God has given them to serve the body and the community in which it's planted. So I'm asking you to join us as we begin this three-month journey to explore how God is calling us to make a greater impact in our neighbors' lives, in West Seneca, in Buffalo, in Western New York. We're gonna update you throughout the process as we work with the Neighborliness Center and how you might be a part of, you know, as we align the vision of our church with the unique gifts and talents that you all have with the unique opportunities that our community has. So stay tuned and if you weren't able to scan that, it'll be available at the Next Steps area out in the foyer after service and we'll send a link to it in the weekly email later this week. But in closing, as we think about the passage that we read in John chapter four, what was Jesus's mission in that situation? His mission was to help everyone in that city know and love him as the Messiah. But what was his strategy to accomplish that mission? He could have performed miracles for the masses to prove undoubtedly that he was God, but that's not what he did. He identified one local citizen who had a reputation, who had some baggage, but who he saw enough value and potential in to be the catalyst for the whole city. He saw the gold in her, not just her flaws. Gold number one was her response to G recognizing that Jesus was a prophet and talking about why she couldn't worship him right where she was at. And Jesus saw the gold was that she had a genuine desire to know God and to worship God. And gold number two was the fact that she was a notorious adulterer that everyone in the city knew about. How is that gold? 
Well, while the city saw her sin, Jesus saw social capital that when redeemed could be the very thing that was needed to bring the whole city to him, which is exactly what happened. When we read in verse 39 at the end of the story, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. They knew who she was, they knew what her reputation was, and they listened to her because of what she was known for. And Jesus's mission was accomplished for that city. And now we see why Jesus had to go through Samaria. Because there was a woman there who needed to understand that her worth and value didn't come from what she could offer men with her body. And there was a whole town of people that needed to hear the good news that the Messiah had come. That's why he had to go through Samaria. I don't know about you, but I wanna be more like Jesus. I wanna be better at seeing the gold in people, the good in people, and not just their sin, not just their faults or flaws, not just their needs, but actually calling that stuff out. I wonder if when we see a drug dealer, if God doesn't maybe see an entrepreneur. I'm serious. Think about your own life. I'm sure you can think of ways that he has redeemed your sin and turned it into something beautiful. Doesn't everyone deserve that? So when it comes to Western New York, will you join me in asking the Lord to open our eyes to who they are that he has called us to reach? To where they are and to what they need? Both grace and truth and in recognizing as well that we're gonna have to take a step and be willing to get into the mess and help meet their felt physical needs in order that we might have an opportunity to also speak to the deeper spiritual need, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for modeling for us what it looks like to engage with a community different from our own. And God, I pray, Lord, I know that I was convicted even as I prepared this message, and I thank you that your Holy Spirit is here convicting us even now of our own apathy, of our own spiritual nearsightedness, where we have been more concerned with our own needs than we have been with the people around us who don't yet know you. God, I thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So if anyone here today is feeling ashamed, Lord, we recognize that for what it is, a lie from the pit of hell. It's the voice of the enemy and we reject that. But we also know that the Holy Spirit does come to bring conviction in order that we might confess and repent and turn to you and ask for your help. And so Lord, the same Holy Spirit that convicts us, I pray now would also empower us to not just be hearers of the word, but that we would also begin to start doing what you've called us to do. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to who the people are in our personal circles that you've called us to reach. Open our eyes to where they are. Maybe it's in homeroom, math class, maybe it's in the office, maybe it's literally our next door neighbor, maybe it's on the west side in the refugee community, maybe it's in the prison system, I don't know, but you're calling each of us to do something. And Lord, open our eyes to what they need. Help us to realize that you wanna use us to be a conduit of your grace and your love that opens them up to the reality that they are loved, they are valuable, they are worthy of honor and dignity. Jesus, thank you in your name.
Amen.